Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. The ferocious minotaur, the proud centaur, Zeus and his pantheon of gods, a night out on the panpipes drinking wine with Dionysus, perilous sea voyages, a blacksmith hammering at its forge, such are the enduring scenes of history painted onto urns and pots that come down to us from antiquity. Such are the wonders and mystery of our half-submerged human origins. A rich tapestry of memories, stitched and woven into the fabric of time and our inner mind. From the grave their voices haunt us still, calling our imaginations forth from their 21st century slumber. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 3, and our celebration of the poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. This poem is read to you by the ever-wonderful Simon Jackson. Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats Thou still unravished bride of quietness Thou foster child of silence and slow time Sylvan historian who canst thus express A flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both, in Tempe or the Dales of Arcady. What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above that leaves a heart high, sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou that heifer lowing at the skies? and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed, 
what little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk this pious morn and little town thy streets forevermore will silent be and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return O Attic shape fair attitude with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought with forest branches and the trodden weed thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity cold pastoral when old age shall this generation waste thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours a friend to man to whom thou sayest beauty is truth truth beauty that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know So I want to start our discussion today by focusing in on the historical context and the poet's particular choice of form and metre. Keats is now one of the most celebrated poets in English literature, and this poem is perhaps his most popular. During his own career, however, Keats laboured for recognition and lacked the renown of poets like William Wordsworth. Ode on a Grecian Urn was composed during an astounding surge of inspiration in the spring of 1819. It was during this short period that Keats also wrote his other odes, including Ode on Indolence, Ode on Melancholy, Ode to a Nightingale and Ode to Psyche. Alongside Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley, Keats is generally classified as a second-generation Romantic poet. Romanticism is known for its belief in the power of the imagination, importance of nature, political outlook, and the prophetic role of poetry in society. While Keats was not a popular poet in his lifetime, a victim of his lower social class in a status-conscious society, his reputation grew after his death in 1821 at the age of just 25 from tuberculosis. Perhaps what's most interesting about this particular poem historically speaking, is the very deliberate attempt by the poet to re-engage with the ancient past in the hope of learning from it. This was part of an overall resurgence in interest in the study of ancient history and artefacts from classical antiquity that was taking place at the time. In terms of form, as the title suggests, this poem by John Keats is an ode. The ode is a form of verse dating back to ancient Greece. And this, of course, makes Keats' decision to use the form of an ode for this particular work a perfect match with the object of his gaze, an ancient Greek urn. The poem itself is made up of five stanzas, each of ten lines. In its traditional form, odes were generally used as celebratory songs, yet this ode is somewhat different in its outlook. Keats's poem isn't quite like the traditional Homeric or Pindaric versions of this form that were popular at the time. Instead, Keats developed his own ode structure. He is thought to have done this because he felt that the more established forms failed to give him the literary canvas he needed to go deep enough into the subject matter. In short, the ode form adopted by Keats 
allowed for an expansive examination of the urn and also allowed for the flowering of intricate doubts and questions within the poem itself. As for the metre or rhythm of the poem, Keats was far more traditional in his approach. The beating heart of the poem is a finely wrought iambic pentameter. This heartbeat-like, soft-hard, soft-hard, I am rhythm is well controlled throughout the poem, establishing a refinement of craft that deliberately reflects the craftsmanship that went into making the urn itself. The language is precise and intricate. Line 8 is an example of perfect iambic pentameter, meaning 10 soft hard soft hard beats to a line. What men or gods are these? What maidens loathe? How naturally beautiful does that line sound? It's like honey on the tip of your tongue. There are of course some deliberate variations to this soft hard rhythm at key moments in the poem. This includes a number of spondees which contain two hard rhythmic beats back to back, such in the words heard melodies or in the line bold lover, never never canst thou kiss. To be sure, Respondees are used for memorable effect, but I'll leave it up to you to think about what those effects might be. So I want to turn now to some of the themes in the poem. And the first here deal with the subject of human mortality and eternity. Ode on a Grecian Urn is a multi-layered reflection on mortality that both celebrates and dreads the transitory nature of life. The illustrations on the urn point to an ancient world that has disappeared and yet as paintings on the surface of the urn itself, these pictures also draw out aspects of eternity. The urn is therefore a paradox. On one hand, its dioramas speak of epivescent escapades in life, which are gloriously frozen in time, a kind of eternal utopia. On the other hand, however, everything and everyone in the urn's world is now dead, buried or destroyed. Within this uncomfortable tension, the speaker tries to make sense of mortality without ever being able to come to a satisfactory resolution. The speaker projects his or her anxiety and frustrations onto the urn, and at different points, the pictures on the urn seem to come to life. Some early stanzas are full of commendations for the scene so blissful, carefree, and full of Epicurean delight. We read about lovers at play, pipe-playing musicians, and the abundance of the natural world all of which creates a happy, happy feeling in the speaker. These lush scenes are a kind of victory of life over death, a vivid celebration. Indeed, the speaker admires the lovers who are forever panting and forever young, and notes that the tree beneath which they sit will never be bare. But then comes the gradual shift into unease. After all, these images are ultimately just a mirage in the desert. Moreover, the figures are not gods, but ghosts. Ghosts left to haunt the corridors of time and history. 
They only seem alive because they are rendered so well, performing actions that speak of vitality and humanity, yet they are not themselves in possession of life. Furthermore, though the maiden depicted cannot fade, neither can her lover ever have thy bliss. That is, he can never kiss her in his frozen state. This reinforces the sense of existential frustration the speaker is himself experiencing in not having his questions adequately answered. Mortality is thus presented not simply as an end to, but also a distinct part of life. The speaker experiences an epiphany over the course of the poem, arguably. This is marked when the speaker introduces his or her mortality in line 8 of stanza 3, saying, All breathing human passion far above. This moment brings to mind the speaker's own breath settling on the object of contemplation. To breathe is to be alive, to be reminded, in this case, of inevitable death. From this point onwards, the the poem becomes less celebratory and more anxious. The busy scenes on the urn seem to speak of an emptiness intimately linked to mortality. By the poem's end, the urn turns cold to the speaker and offers no lasting comfort to his meditation on mortality. To begin with, the luminous vitality of the urn seems to breathe life into dead things, and the stillness of the images makes their lives immortal. Eventually, though, reality descends, and the urn makes mortality all the more present and indisputable. The last theme I want to touch on here is a discussion on the connections between beauty, art and truth. Ode on a Grecian Urn is a complex poem which explores the intimate connections between art, beauty and truth. It is through the experience of beauty, according to the speaker, that people start to draw nearer to the truths in our world. In this relationship, art acts as a vehicle through which human beings can attain this beauty and glimpse universal truths. While mystery lies at the centre of the poem's meditations on existence, it is able to argue that good art offers humankind an essential, if temporary, way of representing and sensing this mystery, even if the experience is somewhat fleeting or difficult to sustain. The poem's memorable and often quoted ending is important in trying to comprehend the speaker's views on art, beauty and truth and solidifies the lines that have come before. The poem's final proclamation that beauty is truth, truth beauty, shows that in the context of this poem, beauty and truth truly are one and the same. The speaker explores and experiences firsthand the aesthetic appeal of the urn throughout the poem and makes connections between the seductive beauty of the object and the poet's own writing about the object, which is equally sensual and delicately crafted. Though the poem struggles to pin down the precise relationship between art, beauty and truth, its language works hard to be beautiful and to show, in the beautiful act of creation, doorways to understanding our human condition that can be opened in a deep and profound way. As such, 
One could argue that it's art's role to create this beauty, which then leads us towards moments of truth and insight that cannot be otherwise obtained. Here, the speaker feels connection is experienced intuitively, which is very much a hallmark of the poetic zeitgeist of the Romantic period. The poem, of course, offers no easy answer to the question of the relationship between art, beauty and truth. But it does argue very passionately that these three qualities are tangled together like a knot that we must at least try to nobly unravel, even if we fail. Furthermore, it may be that the strength of this relationship is partly dependent on its mystery. Perhaps all ye need to know suggests people need to be comfortable in not knowing too. There are, in other words, limits to our understanding and the humble mind that can accept this is in a healthy state of being. The last lines taken out of context might suggest that this is a poem in praise of beauty, yet the speaker's position is much more complex. Whether or not people can achieve lasting beauty through art, the speaker in the poem feels deeply the importance of at least trying. The urn's scenes, yes, are imprisoned forever within time. The melody of the pipes cannot be heard. The trees cannot shed their leaves, and the people walking can never arrive at their ceremony. Indeed, everything is paused in eternity, yet ironically, the pipes do play on. And if you listen hard enough, perhaps the entrapped music of the world around you will be revealed. So it's time to wrap up this week's episode of the Lit Poetry Podcast. I hope you found the reading of this poem to your liking and the analysis stimulating. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. Your ongoing support is much appreciated. We'll finish by listening one more time to the poem. I'll see you next time. Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats Thou still unravished bride of quietness Thou foster child of silence and slow time Sylvan historian who canst thus express A flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady. What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss 
though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve, she cannot fade. Though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love. Forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high, sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou that heifer lowing at the skies? And all her silken flanks with garlands dressed, what little town by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk this pious morn? And little town thy streets forevermore, will silent be, and not a soul to tell, why thou art desolate, can error return. O Attic shape, fair attitude with breed, of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought, as doth eternity, cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain, in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.